Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Asband. Our Daf Day, Masachet Megillah, Daf Chet, page eight. Our Daf really has five Mishnayot. Count them: one, two, three, four, five. They are brief. The Gemara is in between them. I mean, the Gemara on each of the Mishnayot is perhaps less of our interest today. A lot of it is about sourcing the content that's in the Mishnah. So we're going to focus on the Mishnah, and um, let's take it away. The first one is another one of these distinction uh, Mishnayot that says, you know, there's no difference between this and that. So somebody who, this is an interesting case because, you know, the first question I have, which is not the Gemara's question, is why would someone do this thing? Namely, why would somebody ever um, swear off getting benefit from another person as compared to somebody who swears off having benefit from another person's food. So the mission is doing those things. You swear off benefit from a you swear off benefit from a person's food, except for one distinction, namely Drisat Regal, meaning stepping setting foot, stepping foot on his property. And Vikalim Sheinosinhem Ochal Nefesh. And whether you could use that person's or things that are not connected to the preparation of food. Meaning benefit would not be allowed to do those things, but the person who swore off and food would would be allowed to do those things. Now, that is officially, I suppose, interesting, you know, the distinction. But to me, A, this distinction seems kind of self-evident. But but again, I'm still stuck on this question of why would somebody want to be doing this? Um, and the Gemara does not address this. Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. I mean, these Mishnayos are not really here to sort of, I think, discuss a full, um, or the Gemara at least, like the full treatment of the particular topic. It's really highlighting things that have differences and what that are basically similar, but what are their differences? And so we sort of have these like rapid fire Mishnayos, but many of the topics in this Mishnayos actually appear in other Mishnas and other Masakto, which is sort of interesting. Like, why are they sort of here? Um, right. Okay, the next right. one is... And I'm, I'm, sorry. Well, I'm sorry. The 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 focus in this particular Mishnah is about taking a neder, meaning somebody who swears off something, and then you know go learn it in Masach Nedarim. It's not here, exactly. Right, exactly. That's sort of what's going on here, which is a little weird. Ain be Nedarim lenedavot. So I'm now on the second one. Elisha Nedarim chayav ba'achriyotan unedavot einel chayav ba'achriyotan. So here we're talking about two different types of you know offerings that a person can make. It's a personal offering. One is called a neder, right, which is literally in English would translate as a vow offering. And one would be a nidava, which would be a gift offering. Um, and, you know, so the difference would be that for a neder, one, you're obligated, you have a responsibility if it gets lost, um, whereas for a nidava, one, you don't. And so what the Gemara basically explains is, is that, um, you know, what a neder one would be, as you say, I'm going to bring a korban ola then let's say the animal that you were going to use for that corbanola died, got lost, something like that, you're still responsible to fulfill bringing that corbanola. That's what a nedr is. A nidzava, a gift one would be, if you have a cow and you're like, this cow is going to be a corbanola, something happens to that cow, it gets lost, it dies, you're not obligated to bring that nidzava anymore because you, it was that specific cow that was supposed to be brought, not the general concept of bringing a particular category of korban. Um, and the only other thing I want to point out is uh, the first line of the Gemara here, Hala inlan bal tacher zebezeh shavin. 
right? We had this before, this idea of, um, you know, uh, having to sort of um, bring the korban in an appropriate time, right? Like not delaying how long it takes to bring the korban. And we've seen that before with discussions or korbanos, right? Whether it's a full cycle of regalim, whether it's, you know, the holidays, we, we saw this discussion before in, in Beitza, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so, um, you know, just to, I just wanted to point out that it appeared, this idea of Baltacher appears again here. Uh, I always think of this, you know, the difference between like this dollar bill or $5 bill or $20 bill, or whatever, this dollar bill is going to be for tzedakah or the amount, the value of, of $20. Because we say money is fungible, but if you're speaking specifically about the piece of paper, and then something would happen to it, gets lost, whatever, torn, I don't know, then you're no longer obligated, or are you? Um, it's the same rationale. I just don't live in carbonote in the same way as I might, you know, in my own paper money type of thing. Although, who lives with paper money anymore? Okay, the next Mishnah. Now, here we're talking about a case of a Zav. A Zav is... Uh, somebody who fundamentally has some kind of venereal disease. And the distinction here, or the lack of distinction here, is between somebody who has two emissions of the, whatever it is, the discharge that they're having that is not a healthy one, and as compared to three emissions. Now, all of this, again, is discussed elsewhere. Um, the distinction between them, meaning where they're not the same, is whether you have to bring a carbon. The one who has three emissions is obligated to bring a carbon when he gets better, to in as part of purifying, as part of coming back from the tuma of of zavut, um, and the person who has only two emissions does not. Now the gemara, the first line of the gemara here also um, brings it to our attention the ways in which these are similar. It goes through to say they're they're similar in terms of transmitting tuma to another surface. Right. And the idea of the need to count seven days afterwards to make sure that you have completed your your zavut, meaning after a person has no more um, discharge, then they have to count seven days and eventually go to the mikvah and so on. Um, I do think it's nice even that the Gemara comes and makes it clear to us. Well, we might not know offhand, you know, because the Mishnah tells us the one way in which these two cases are different. So the Gemara comes and says, but here's the all the other ways in which they are the same, um, which I think it's kind of a nod to the fact that that's the topic at hand. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so next Mishnah. <laughs> so here we're talking about two different types of Mitsuras, right? People who have leprosy, right? A Mitsura Misugar is one, like this is, and it's funny, I'm looking at an English that uh, calls it a quarantined uh, Mitsura. <laughs> but if somebody has something on their skin, right, and they're not sure whether or not it, this was actually Mitsoa, right, it was inconclusive. So basically, they isolate for a period, can be up to two weeks, actually, to see if sort of more conclusive symptoms basically arrive, right? And so, sorry, I'm, I, so the Mitsoa Misugar is one who's not confirmed. And the Mitsoa Mukhlat is one who is confirmed. So the Sora Misugar is the one who's quarantined. It's like, you know, sort of, He's waiting there. And so there's no difference between them except for Priya Ufrima. In other words, they're both not in the camp anymore, right? They both have to live separately. But um, but we're talking about sort of letting the hair on one's head grow wild and also 
uh, sort of, you know, rending one's garment. And so the idea is, is that a mitzora muchlat, a confirmed mitzora, is not allowed to cut their hair, right? Um, and and rend its garments, right? And and a one that's misugar it is allowed to. And then it goes on to say, So also the difference between uh, a mitzvah that was purified from quarantine, like from this, you know, inconclusive state. In other words, they waited out the period of time they needed to do. The symptoms never entered a state of being conclusive. And so therefore they could start, you know, they could become tahor. Or the difference between a confirmed mitzorah, right, a, a mitzorah muchlat that also becomes tahor, only is with uh, the only difference is with shaving their head and all their body um, and bringing all their birds, right? So those are things that are obligated by the mitzorah muchlat. They have to shave all of their hair and then they have to bring a korban of birds um, as a uh, as part of the uh, purification process. Um, and so, uh, and so again, the Gemara points out something that I said, right? When it comes to Shiluach literally means like the expulsion, right? That they have to be out of all of the camps, basically, right? They can't be, you know, anywhere within the, 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 the city. They have to live by themselves. And also that their tame, both of them have that halacha with them. And then again, the Gemara is going to sort of go through how did they learn these differences? But I think it's just an important topic to read up about sort of these two, the Mitsura Misugar versus the Mitsura Muklat. I think this is, this is one of those Mishnah that hits a little bit too close to home as there's too much COVID again going around. Um, okay, uh, meaning with the new variant. Okay, um, this last Mishnah of Ardaf is going to open up a topic, not with just a brief amount of Gemara, but the bulk of that Gemara on this mission is going to be tomorrow's daf. So we'll talk about it then. Here we go. So we're talking here about, and it's such a, you know, such a dramatic shift from the content of, of the Tzarat and from the Zav, Okay, we're talking here about the writing of scrolls, of Torah scrolls, and of writing of tefillin and mezuzot. And the Mishnah says there's no distinction between them, meaning writing a Torah scroll versus writing tefillin and mezuzot. Tefillin and mezuzot get, to, get slunk together. Um, slunk being my technical term here. So the except for the one thing, namely that a Torah scroll can truly be written in any language, meaning and still be a kosher Torah. And the tefillin and mezuzah, mezuzah have to be written in Kitav Ashurit, meaning in written in Hebrew, but specifically the Hebrew kind of square print letters that we think of as the writing of a of a Torah scroll, meaning that same kind of of scribal writing. So Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel comes and says, well, even regarding the Torah scroll, meaning you're talking about a Sefer Torah, that can be written not only in Asherit, but it has the only other option is Greek, meaning not don't try French or Latin or English or anything like Chinese, I don't know, only with Greek. Um, this speaks to a whole other conversation about the translation of the Torah into Greek and the formal way that came about, meaning we call this a Septuagint or Septuagint, depending on who you are. And it's in Hebrew, it's called the Targum Shivim. And there's a very beautiful Midrashic story about 
how it is that the that the sages themselves wrote uh translated the torah into greek or or approved the translation into greek for the sake uh whatever we'll talk about it another time but the idea is that it was the approved translation into greek by chazal which makes me say okay so rabbi shimon ben gamliel's restriction here um limits it to greek of the Targum Shivim, as opposed to the more broad statement in the from the Tanakama, which you know he's he's not comfortable with that, and I understand the discomfort because even preparing it, my thought is you know wait a second if we've already established that translation is interpretation, then this idea that you could read the Torah in any which language, you know whose whose translation and how you'll end up with a dramatically different meaning based on you know who's doing the translating. Targum Shivim, the whole story of it is that 70 scholars, you know, did the same exact translation, you know, miraculously, and that's why it was accepted. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see that this issue of translation specifically seems to come up in this Masachet. Like, we've learned a bunch of Masachto together already, and we've seen translation come up twice. So, uh, you know, uh, it makes sense that it sort of comes up in Masachet Megillah. Because I think we're physically talking about a Megillah itself, um, but uh, it's just curious to me that we see it here twice. That's it for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about these Mishnayot and where they're going. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>